You are listening to the Be The Bridge podcast with Latasha Morrison. How are you guys doing today? It's exciting. Each week, Be The Bridge podcast tackles subjects related to race and culture with the goal of bringing understanding. But I'm going to do it in the spirit of love. We believe understanding can move us toward racial healing, racial equity, and racial unity. Latasha Morrison is the founder of Be The Bridge, which is an organization responding to racial brokenness and systemic injustice in our world. This podcast is an extension of our vision to make sure people are no longer conditioned by a racialized society, but grounded in truth. If you have not hit the subscribe button, please do so now. Without further ado, let's begin today's podcast. Oh, and stick around for some important information at the end. Be the Bridge community. Um, this is Latasha Morrison here, the founder and CEO of Be the Bridge. And I got my buddy Jefferson Jones here. Yay. We're excited. But we have a special guest, um, a person that, you know what, I've gotten to know over the last year and can really call him friend. I love his heart. I love how he brings everybody else along. Um, Mr. PhD himself, Mr. Jamar Tisby. Welcome to the Be The Bridge podcast. And just so that you guys know a little bit about him, he is the author in New York Times best-selling book, The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the Church's Complicity and Racism. He also wrote How to Fight Racism and How to Fight Racism. Racism, Young Readers Edition. He is also a professor at the His- uh, of History at Simmons College of Kentucky in Louisville. Jamar is the co-host of Pass the Mic podcast. Um, he speaks nationwide on topics of racial justice, U.S. history, Christianity. Jamar earned his Ph.D. History um, in history and studies of race, religion, and social movements in the 20th century. Um, if you don't know anything about him, make sure you're following his newsletter. And he also has a substack called Footnotes, and he's on social media at Jamar Tisby. So, welcome to the Be the Bridge podcast. That was a mouthful. You are <laughs> busy, brother. Listen, I'm I'm trying to be like you. As soon as you said founder, CEO, I'm like boss lady. Just you know? boss. Yeah. <laughs> in charge. You know, uh-uh. I, I call you my New York Times bestseller list twin because we did yes, it the same exactly. year. You know same what I'm saying? Time. Yeah, oh, have, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But listen, um, J- Jamar, there's a lot of us in this, this space. Um, as, as African-Americans and leadership can be um, a lonely space in, in the, the space of racial healing. And mm-hmm. Jamaris and uh, uh, several others um, have have just come alongside and just helped support. Uh, we, we, we mentor each other in that sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're able to dialogue and um, talk about personal things that's going on. It's just some good stuff. But uh, so I, I've gotten to know him really well over the last year. So I'm just grateful for that and how um, leaders carve out space for other leaders um, during yeah. this time. Now, listen, it's Black History Month. Jamar, it's we the most wonderful time <laughs> yes. of the year. <laughs> listen, Everybody want to say it's Christmas, but for a historian, Black History yes. Month, it, it, I keep saying Super it's Bowl. like Easter. It's Super Bowl. Yeah, 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 exactly. And by it's the way, Super, Super Bowl, Bowl is 
getting Black History yes, Month. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good one, Latasha. That's a good one. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but listen, people always seem to cut up during this month. <laughs> we can't. We ne- we can never get a break from it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so right. I, we, I, you know, we just got to start off with setting the record straight. Now, those of you, if you're new to our community, um, this may be new information. If you've been with us for a while, if you listen to the podcast, you know, because you are being um, formed um, to understand um, the process of, of racial healing and what that looks like through biblical justice. And so, um, and one of the things that we talk about, um, you know, is, is lamenting our history and having a common history. Uh, one of the things we talk about is truth telling and making sure that, um, that, you know, God cannot heal what we conceal. So we talk about how we have to have a adequate record of history, a truth record of history. Um, And so um, in the news recently, there was a statement that was made and it was kind of all over the the internet and the socials. And I'm thinking like, are, are we still here? Like, wait a minute. Did we just miss the last six, seven years <laughs> that we've had these conversations? So it's almost frustrating as, you know, um, a, a BIPOC person in this country when we have leaders to say that America has never been a racist country. Mm. Um, when we have racial categories. Um, most of us this, uh, that are on this call, um, our parents, we're just one generation removed from segregation, from um, the Voting Rights Act, um, from the Housing Rights Act. Um, th- there's legacies all over us, all around us. We are still um, um, suffering from that in our community. And when someone says that, you're looking like, they're not living in reality. Um, what are you I mean, thinking? Are we, are we naming names? Can we talk about who said it? Yeah, go ahead and say it. No, yes, who okay. said it? Yeah. Let's. Oh. I, I, but I want. I have the historian here, and so <laughs> um, I. I just want you to address that. Um, you know. We know that those who continue to listen to Be The Bridge, they know this, um, but this is a podcast they can share. And if people are mm-hmm. confused about this, but I think people are willfully confused. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted uh, Mr. Jamar Tisby, um, professor of history, to explain yeah. to people why that is a really a blasphemous statement. Yeah. yeah. So, Natasha, are we going to use the... Um the official name or the maid name to be accepted in the society. The, 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 she has, this person has two names. Oh yeah. 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 Oh, Oh, okay. Very good. That, that, that's oh, a good oh, point. Oh, oh, oh okay. That's so a just good one. For people, because the news cycle moves so swiftly, folks have probably forgotten this happened, yes. even though it was a big deal when it did. So um, Nikki Haley, who's the only remaining uh, contender for the Republican nomination for president, was at some sort of town hall, some interview, and somebody point blank asked her, you know, what was the cause of the Civil War? And she wouldn't say it was slavery. As a matter of fact, she went even further and said the U.S. is not a racist nation, not a racist country, right? Which was Mm -hmm. patently ridiculous. And Mm -hmm. the internet 
uh, understandably blew up around this. And, and, and to your point, Jefferson, uh, if the U.S. is not a racist country, if it's got equality of opportunity for everyone, Nikki Haley, why did you change your name from Nimarada? Because she's uh, first, she's, her parents are Indian immigrants. Mm-hmm. Yep. And she's the first generation born in the U.S. And they named her Nimrata, <laughs> right? Uh, but she goes by Nikki, Nikki Haley. And if you didn't know what she looked like or any of her background, you would think this is a white woman, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Well, why is that? She knows what's going on. And as a matter of fact, this speaks to the immigrant experience more broadly. So we just diving right in here. Yes, Tasha, we're, we're I'm, going I'm counting in. on the fact we're, that you we're, have... <laughs> You know, walk your folks, your listeners in yes. so that when they hear me, they can receive me and understand yes. my heart behind this thing. And, yes. and I'm not trashing anybody or downing anybody, but let's yeah. talk about reality. So when immigrants come to this nation, as mm-hmm. would we, if we were going to another country, we would look at the landscape and say, who's, who's, who's got it best? Who's kind of making the most of this situation and has the most privileges, most opportunities. And how can we get in with them? Because we want the same things for ourselves, for our families. Well, when you come to the U.S., who has it best? And I'm speaking as a group, right? Here's the thing with white people. They immediately say, well, white people don't have it best. My family did this. My family did that. I'm going through this. Yes, on an individual level. Yeah. But socially. Systemically, yes. Systemically, yes. I think I think we need a book on this, Miss Morrison. Wait a minute, it's coming, it's coming. (laughs) There we go. You said I I played your book, just split it right in there. Yeah, yeah. I see how you just later in the mail. Yes, yeah. So, so listen, we dive right in. Let me back up a little bit. Okay, so her statement is patently false, but understand what's going on. She's a smart woman. She studied. She knows the history. She even. Here's the evidence. She went on Saturday Night Live, which I'm still mad at SNL for having her come on and make light of this. She went on Saturday Night Live in the, in the cold open. She is uh, there, the real Nikki Haley, talking to an actor playing Donald Trump. And, and as part of that sketch, uh, she says, yeah, I probably should have just said the Civil War was about slavery. Because they asked that, right? In the, in the, in, mm-hmm. it was in it. And my frustration is they made light of a very serious situation, which we can do, but mm-hmm. not in this particular instance. I don't think it was helpful because it sort of let her off the hook in a mm-hmm. funny way. And it's like, oh, oops, my bad. Should have had a B8. No, 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 yeah. no. You are running for nomination uh, to be president of the United States. If yeah. you cannot forthrightly declare, that yeah. this, the main issue of the Civil War was over the future of race-based chattel slavery, then you don't get a pass for that, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but here's what was going on. Nikki Haley knows her constituents. Regardless of what she personally believes about U.S. history and slavery, she knows what she can and cannot say to get Republican votes in this current climate. Yeah. So she knows that if she came right out and said what we know, we, we, what we all know and understand and can prove that the Civil War's main issue was about the future of slavery. If yes. she came out and said that, she knew she would lose votes. 
She would yeah. lose support that people on the right and further to her right would have something to say. So when she answered that question, she was not answering factually. She was answering politically. I will say that again so you catch yes. it. She was not answering factually. She was answering politically. And guess what? That's not just Nikki Haley and at the presidential le level. You can go on down to the state level. You can look at governors. You can look at state representatives. You can even look at school boards. It's not that they don't have the knowledge or the information. It's that they're pandering to a political audience to score political points. So many of these folks, particularly at the grass tops and the leadership level, as opposed to the grassroots and the folk level, they know what they're doing and they're being manipulative toward the grassroots. So that's how I would parse that situation and say, if we don't understand what's going on, we can sit here and be bewildered. Well, how could she say the Civil War is not about slavery? Does she not know? Yeah, she knows, but she's playing a game and we're getting beat at that game, politically speaking. So let's wake mm -hmm. up. Yeah. You see, I wish I had an organ to play behind no. you. I needed an organ. For real. And, and thank you. Uh, and this is the thing. If you didn't know and you're listening to this podcast, now you do know. Um, because it's simple. Everything that Jamar just said, you can pick up. You can Google South Carolina. That's the state that she's from. She was the governor. She's the one that actually removed the Confederate flag from the top of the state house. She knows the history. Okay. And you can, you can just Google South Carolina, Carolina Declaration of Secession 1860. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it has it all in there. So when you are. South Carolina was the first state to secede. Yes. They, December 1860. 1860. Mississippi was second. They followed yes. South Carolina. <laughs> and by the way, uh, you know, we're, we're, I'm sure we're going to talk about, you know, what do we do about stuff like this? Yes. Well, one of the things we can do is learn from activists and artists and community organizers like Bree Newsom Bass. Yes. Who folks will remember climbed the flagpole in front of the South Carolina State, State House to physically take down the Confederate flag. I believe this was back in 2015. Yes. And mind you, South Carolina is also where uh, Emanuel AME Church is, where, of course, the Emanuel 9 massacre tragically took place. But even before that, it's always been a site of, of Black organizing and resistance. Denmark, VC, 18. Yep. 22, some, I, I believe, yeah. 21. Mm -hmm. um, he was in that church and he almost, almost pulled off probably what would have been the biggest slave rebellion in the nation's history had he not been snitched on by yeah. fellow black folks. But anyway, yeah. she knows the yeah. history because she's in it. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the church was built down and the rebuilding of that church was Mother Emmanuel. Yes. You remember doing mm -hmm. that rebellion. So, I mean, and I was, um, go um, ahead. No, I was going to say, I was actually in that church uh, yeah. a few weeks prior to for a wedding. And I actually oh, got to meet some of the people that were, um, were murdered. Yeah, yeah. This is recent history. So it is a stab in our heart to hear mm -hmm. our leaders who are running for president of the entire United States. So that means... African-Americans, that means South mm -hmm. Asians, East Asians, indigenous, you know, um, you know, our uh, Latin people. And I mean, just the whole get like everybody. We are a huge salad. You know, I don't want to say melting pot because we melted, but we are a huge salad with distinctions mm -hmm. uh, that make up this wonderful salad. And you have to be able to speak 
to all of that. And so, um, yeah, thank you, brother. I just wanted to just, you know, it's just, we started Black History off every month. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you you think it's, it's the most wonderful time of the year. So you're thinking like mm-hmm. people are going to just show up well and engage and um, talk about this with their children. Uh, but we always have to clear up and clean up mess. So, uh, yeah. But, like uh, haircuts. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> Go get that Travis Kelsey uh, cut. Oh my! Okay, can we talk about that real quick? This is a current event. Um, For folks who don't know, there was an article in New York Times, the paper record for many people, that said that basically was like, "What is this new haircut sweeping the nation? We call it the Travis Kelsey." And they show a picture of Travis Kelsey. That boy ain't rocking nothing but a fade. Fade. A ball fade. <laughs> a ball fade that we've been doing since forever, ever. Oh, my God. And yeah. now that you got Taylor Swift's boyfriend, <laughs> you know, yeah. now that Taylor Swift boyfriend have it, it's a thing. Yeah. And it's just one other example of why we need a Black History Month, because our history often goes unacknowledged, unappreciated, co-opted, colonized, right? Yeah. You'll think mm-hmm. something because the first time you heard about it was from or with a white person, never knowing that black people or other people of color or indigenous people been doing this for a long, long time. Yeah. So that yes. was ridiculous. You brought that up. Yeah, and I'm, just, I'm yeah, still yeah. hot about and it. And that that includes <laughs> that includes the Bantu knots that they tried to rename the Michael okay. Kors knots on the runway. Yeah. Yeah. Like w- we've been doing that. <laughs> like yeah. it's called Bantu. Which right. is it's, an yeah. indigenous tribe in Africa. So yeah. It's bad until they can profit off of it. <laughs> exactly, so, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But uh th- thank you, brother, for really clearing the air with that. You know, you guys, you you were just invited into a conversation. We are having a conversation <laughs> with our friend Jamar Tisby. We're talking about all the things. It's Black History Month. So we are extra blackity black black. And, uh, <laughs> and and we can talk about what we want to talk about. It's just like like we say the Super Bowl month for Black people. And I know we get on everybody's nerves, but it's okay. You know, we're gonna we're gonna lead you the right way in, in this. But J- Jefferson, we were just talking about um, um, a couple things related to Jamar that I know that you wanted to bring up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he uh, noticed he just did a piece with uh, CNN. And just really giving your, your your perspective and view on how we could be so much further along and how we can get, you know, so much more out of Black History Month. And just you kind of, you know, you give some ways and some uh, bits and pieces to help people out. Um, if you could just speak into that and uh, what uh, people can do during this time and why it's so rich, why this month is so important, not just to Black people, but I think to all people, yes. especially here in America. Yep. 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 I appreciate that. Um, I I did uh, publish an article in in CNN opinion called we could be getting so much more out of Black History Month. Um, And and I believe that because while I love this time of year, I'm a little let down by the way we commemorate it. So here's what generally happens is uh, Black History Month, February 1st, everybody posts about it. It's a big deal. Some social media outlets and accounts will do a daily thing throughout the month. But here's what happens is 
we give you Black History Month as a set of factoids, an extended month-long did-you-know. And we talk about a Black inventor or a Black first or whatever. And these are worthy stories, but that's not actually how history is studied. Mm. History is about change and continuity over time. And the only way to understand that is if you get the context. So what we're doing effectively with Black History Month is we are viewing it as a set of disconnected data points on a timeline without understanding the through line of Black history. It's as if somebody handed you a book, but they said you can only read two pages from three sections of the entire Mm. book. Mm. It's as if somebody uh, took you to a movie and said, we're not going to show you the movie. We're just going to show you 30-second clips from a few points in the movie. You wouldn't have an accurate understanding of plot, of character development, of tension, of drama, of climax, of denouement, of any of that. So we are losing the scope of Black Mm. history by disintegrating it into these sets of factoids and did you knows and you know uh 10 things you you didn't know about so and so again mm. it's not that that in and of itself is bad or negative we can still learn a lot but we're missing yes the last part of history which is story mm. and i want people to know the black story yes yes not just plot points Data Mm. points, isolated points on a timeline. And by the way, this is why people think history is boring. Because if it's just about a name, a date, an event here, a name, date, an event there, then you don't get any of the drama or the beauty or the tension of a narrative. Mm -hmm. And so why would you care? So if we want people to care about history and be fascinated by history, if we want to be fascinated by history, then we have to understand the story in the history. Mm, yeah. It makes us one dimensional. It makes mm-hmm. us one dimensional, you know? So with that, uh, Jamar, you made me think about a, a lot of things, uh, but you said something that's rich to my heart as I, you know, study the word also minister context. And I always say context is key. Yes. You made me think about exegesis mm-hmm. and eisegesis. Yes. So mm-hmm. it made me think this, that we are taking eisegetical approaches, approaches, to black history instead of exegetical approach to black history. And I just went to UGA yesterday and I was able to tie uh, a, 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 a portion of history uh, to Methodists and connect the dates with the founding date of University of Georgia, which 1785, the birth of Richard Allen, who planted Methodist church seven, and his birth was 1760. And when he started that first um, Methodist church and why that was so important for them to understand in their context and the importance, the connectiveness, the, that connectivity yeah. of different That's events right. and why it's so important. Yeah. Could you just as, speak as into that for just analogy. a second? <laughs> well, thinking uh, of the Bible, right? We, we mm-hmm. always say in churches and discipleship, you got to understand the context in order to know what's going on. Right. And that is a guard against proof texting, where you cherry pick Mm. verses Mm -hmm. to craft 
the story or the principle or the mm-hmm. theology that you want instead of seeing the broader scope of the right. Bible. We do the same thing with history. We mm-hmm. proof text history. We cherry pick this event and that event and this event, and we don't get a sense of the whole story. So that's a great way to think about it as well. Yeah. Um, but I do good. say, you know, not to leave people hanging, there are ways to do it better. And so in that article, I give a few suggestions that I think um, would be helpful. And they're very basic. By the way, I keep telling people, you know, Latasha, you know this, one of the most frequent questions we get in this work is what do we do? And sometimes I feel like I disappoint people because my suggestions are not innovative. (laughs) They're not brand new because the problem isn't brand new. Mm-hmm. And we've known for a long time what we need to do about it. So in the same vein, uh, as I say, you know, suggestions for for approaching black history better, it's not that these are brand new. It's just that we don't actually do them. Mm. So um, one of the things I suggest is going to a museum alone. Mm. Now, I say alone because so frequently... If we go to a museum at all, well, number one, we got to get over the obstacle that we think museums are boring. They're not. There's a whole subfield in the academic study of history called public history. And that is dedicated to conveying historical truths to to the broader public who Mm -hmm. are not trained historians. And so these folks are good at what they do. They are good at communicating historical knowledge. There are amazing museums all across the country and more all the time. Wherever you go, Go alone because we're so often going with a group, with other people, and we tend to be under the pressure of someone else's timetable. So we rush through sections, we skip sessions, sections, and 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 some of us want to want to dwell. Mm. And it would be really helpful if you paused and read all of the placards, all of the captions. It would be really helpful if after reading that or going through a section, you sat down and let the weight of it. Yeah. Let the significance of it hit. It doesn't even have to be negative. Just ponder it and don't just like have it pass by your eyesight and you're on to the next thing. So one is that read a whole book on yes. some aspect of black history. I say read a whole book. That counteracts this uh, tidbit approach to history. Yeah. Um, because if you read a whole book on it, the author has structured a narrative, has structured a story, and there are all kinds of details. And there are literally footnotes, hello, that give you even more information. So that helps you give a sen- get a sense of continuity. And one more, I've got a couple other ones in there, but one more I'll mention here. How to get the most out of Black History Month. Ask a family member or friend about what they remember about yeah. a particular historical time period or event. And the example I used in the article is my mom was a young teacher uh, while the civil rights and black power movement was happening. And so I asked her one day, like, what was it like to be a teacher in that time? Now, mind you, she's in the North. She's in Michigan. So it's different. But uh, especially in the black power era, there would sometimes be uh, threats or warnings about uh, uprisings, rebellions. uh, Some people would call them riots. And so they would have to, if they got a call, she would have to take her class, file them out in the hallway, have the students sit down in the hallway, cover their heads with their hands in case a brick or, you know, something else came through the window. And that's not a detail you could get, you know, almost anywhere else, right? No. And, and so that's a really accessible way. 
every, all of us know someone, family, friend, church member, who was alive in a different era, and simply asking them their recollections, their thoughts, their perceptions of these previous eras can also help us get some context about history. Yeah, I think that's important, especially so like good. your your parents and um, you know, and and just your relatives. You know, for me, I was just talking with my mom because I do what I do. A lot of times, our parents they have suppressed a lot. Like there's a trauma there for what they experienced in the the '60s and '50s that have shaped them. And so it mm-hmm. wasn't until me entering into this work that my parents started opening up about um, their experiences, um, their history, um, schooling, all all of the different things. And my mom just told me a story um, because something happened and it was very triggering to her. Mm. And she told me that um, when she was a little girl, she hated Halloween because they couldn't go um, trick-or-treating because that was a time where people um, would actually um, spit and throw rocks at the Black kids if they were out. And plus being out at night in a sundown town, like, you can't do that. And so um, she was, this is a time when she was in Robinson County, North Carolina, and she just talked about this time where they went out anyway um, because my one of her brother was in the hospital because he had had, um, severe burns. He tried to barbecue in the backyard with gasoline. So he was in the hospital, my uncle with very, they didn't know if he was going to make it. And so they wanted to go and get him some candy. So they decided to go trick-or-treating and um, they got bricks thrown at them. And she was Mm. just throwing, she was telling me this story. And she said, Tasha, you don't know what we've been through. You know, so when you hear something mm. like a Nikki Haley say, make the comments or you hear certain comments that are are said from political leaders, um, from from um, governmental leaders, um, it stabs, um, it rewounds, um, you know, um, the black community like that, that, that what was stated is not something just to joke about. Because what that did was discount someone's pain, you know, mm-hmm. it discounted someone's experience. It discounted um, some of our relatives that fought in the Civil War for our freedoms, you know. And so right. it's it's not it's not history to be joked with. So, you know, as we think about, you know, all of this. You know, we're just moving into um, a, a point in our history where it, even in talking with some of my relatives where it just feels like it's going backwards, my mom said. Mm-hmm. She said, I feel mm-hmm. like we're going backwards. And when we think about this, you know, there are um, a lot of um, things happening, the rollback of DEI programs, um, you know, um, you, you know, as I know, as as a business owner, as a nonprofit leader, um, there is very little money, especially leading a nonprofit that deals with racial healing. Yeah. Okay. There is very little money. People don't see it as importance. Um, you know, there's little money out there. So we're, especially as a black woman, we're getting less than two percent 
of the funds that are out there. So what do we do? We've always been an innovative community and, you know, we're going to pull ourselves up by the bookstraps. We are survivors. We are resilient. We make a way out of no way. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. This is what we do. And so we start programs that are going to help venture funds that are going to help fund us. You know, Um, we start you know, um, diversity, equity initiative programs of education that's going to help educate people that are missing to help them fill in the gaps and give them context, help people recognize their biases so that they can do better and be better. But now we see that this has been weaponized. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about where we are right now. um, And then we'll talk a little bit about the way forward. In my second book, How to Fight Racism, I structure it around this framework I call the ARC of Racial Justice. That's an mm-hmm. acronym that stands for Awareness, Relationships, Commitment. I'll okay. focus on the A right now because I think that's getting at what you're talking about, awareness. So in the ARC of Racial Justice, one of the things that we have to do is equip ourselves with knowledge, mm-hmm. information, data about race, racism, mm-hmm. and white supremacy. When you do that, you notice one of these things that I keep saying, racism never goes away, it adapts. Yep. Right? Like we, we're always looking for the, the magic bullet, the one law, the one policy, the one elected official, the one march or protest that's going to make racism go away. It's not going to happen. And in a, in a Christian framework, if we believe racism is sin, which it is, then we should easily understand this because what other sins have just gone away? Because a law was passed or time has passed, none of them. But we expect that of racism. So if it doesn't go away and it adapts, then then what does it look like today in the contemporary landscape? Well, one of the things that they're doing is weaponizing colorblind rhetoric. So they're Mm -hmm. using the idea of colorblindness, that we shouldn't see race, that skin color should never come into the equation as a roundabout way of actually reinforcing racial inequality. how that work? I thought colorblindness was a good thing. I thought Martin Luther King said, judge people by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. Jamar, what are you saying? I'm saying we shouldn't be colorblind. We should be color conscious. Right. And mm-hmm. to be color conscious means that for centuries in this nation, Black people were systematically denied opportunities. Mm-hmm. And the solution to that systematic denial of opportunity is not to pretend like we're all equal because we're not starting out all in the same place. Black people are in a deficit politically, economically, socially, in, a, in so many ways, by intention of, of many people for generations before this. So what do you do? Martin Luther King also said, if this country has done something special against the Negro, it must do something special for the Negro to mm-hmm. make up for those disadvantages that uh, were, were forced on us. So to your question, what they're doing with Oh, they don't DEI remember that, though. They don't remember the other <laughs> part that he said. Oh, no, no, no. That's yeah. the, peri- the cherry picking. The cherry picking, exactly. <laughs> um, but the, the, the way that works out is affirmative action, DEI. There's even a black women's group in Atlanta, I believe, right? Yeah. That is focused on black women entrepreneurs. And mm-hmm. what 
the far right is doing now is saying, well, that's discrimination. You cannot have a special funding program for black women because that's taking color into account and we're supposed to be colorblind. That's racist is what they're saying. When the reality is, as you say, black women only get 2% of the money that's out there. And that's not, and black women are, I believe, uh, the largest share of entrepreneurs. Yes. Like they're, they're, they're starting businesses. And the most educated group. And the most educated group. So it's not because y'all ain't working hard. Right. And it's not because y'all ain't educated. Right. It's because of historic and systematic racism. And so what the right is saying is you cannot uh, pay attention to that. You got to treat everybody the same. But fair isn't equal. 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 If you've been enjoying and learning from the Be The Bridge podcast, we invite you to join us in this work. You can support and sustain our mission as a recurrent partner at bethebridge.com forward slash give. You can also help spread this word of bridge building by supporting and really sporting our apparel. So if you haven't gotten your Be The Bridge hat, sweatshirt, all of the things, let's take the message to the street. Visit our online store at shop.bethebridge.com and make sure we're spreading the word about all the work that Be The Bridge is doing and will do. At Be The Bridge, we're doing the work to empower people and culture toward racial healing racial equity, and racial reconciliation. And this work is only possible because of the generosity of bridge builders like you. So thank you so much for those of you who are listening and sharing our podcast, sharing our posts, those of you who are giving to this work um, that's helping us create resources and material um, that will transform hearts. Um, So join us at bethebridge.com forward slash give and let's continue to build bridges together. Thank you so much. And that's where equity comes in. And that's the um, the dangerous word now where we, we talking about equitable, what is just um, giving people mm-hmm. what equity is, giving people what they are due. So, you know, so we know that as as repair, you know, and I mean, scripturally, yeah. we we all wrote about it in our book so you guys can read about it, <laughs> you know, but we know there there is a biblical way. and if anybody should understand this, everything that we're talking about are Christians. And so why is that, Jamar? Why don't Christians, why aren't we shining a light and leading this and being the voice for this rather than being complacent, uh, being a, a, a large part of the issues and also starting the issues mm-hmm. as it related to CRT. That CRT, that whole groundswell came out of, you know, the SBC. Mm. Yeah, I said it. Yeah. I said it. Say it again. Um, Say it again. In a, in, in a word, white Christian nationalism. Uh, white Christian nationalism, as I've said often, is the greatest threat to democracy and the witness of the church in the United States today. Uh, but let me back up a little bit. So, 
you know, why is it that Christians aren't more frequently part of the solution and are often part of the problem? Well, uh, number one, it's quite selective in the sense that mm. white Christians understand systemic mm-hmm. injustice or understand the systemic implications of an issue. Mm-hmm. If they didn't, they wouldn't have been working for decades to get certain judges appointed. They wouldn't have had um, an annual, what they call March for Life, in order to overturn a law, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they understand working on systems and policies and institutions to bring about a desired result. It's selective in the sense that they'll do it for certain issues, but they won't do it about race. Mm. And a lot of this is discipleship in the churches where, yeah. you know, we folks yeah. are being taught, you mm-hmm. know, the right issues that we need to organize and mobilize around as Christians. And so mm-hmm. often, partly due to segregation, the issues that do not come up as the ones that we need to mobilize and organize around are issues that have to do with race and the legacy of race-based chattel slavery. So that's mm-hmm. one level. The other level is, and it has to, again, do with discipleship, um, this conflection between the fate of the nation and the fate of the church. Mm. That people believe unless the United States looks a certain way, mm. it's going to be destroyed and along with it, the church will be destroyed. The church is losing ground. The church is being persecuted if this particular official doesn't get elected, if this particular law isn't passed or repealed. And and they're saying that um, the United States has this special place in in God's heart above other nations and that uh, their mission, which is really about a political power grab, is... Mm is God's mission and how dare you get in the way of it. So there's a lot more to that. That's some dangerous stuff. That is so dangerous. I would, I mean, when you just even put it, like we've been studying this nationalism, but it's like, and people are really falling for it, you know, because I heard someone say in an interview, well, what nationalism would you want besides Christian nationalism? And I was And they said it with a straight face. Of course. Yeah. I mean, the term is clunky, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you really have to know what white Christian nationalism is right? to understand the language. Because most people interpret that word nationalism as patriotism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we just love our country. No, no, no. Nationalism has this exclusionary, narrow sense yes. to it. And idolatry even uh, that is more than just affection for the place where you were born and where you live. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 And this makes you think about it. We get to that place where there's conflation where to be American is to be Christian. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And so if America is being attacked, you're attacking God. And we can't have that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly yeah, that it. Makes me, that makes me think about um, something that you have uh, coming up, uh, a, a movie. Were you in, yeah. being featured? It's called um, God and Country. That's it's right. a Marvel and, uh, movie. Marvel movie. <laughs> I'm gonna be there. I'm gonna be in there. I'm not Look. the new Kang the Conqueror. Yeah. <laughs> you got it's the new Black Panther. Like what's going on? Now? Uh, what you been holding back on? Now? Up, so what kind of forever? So you know, and this is a phrase that I've seen you share, uh, Jamar, over and over again. 
know, white Christian nationalism is the greatest threat to democracy and the witness of the church in the United States today. So uh, many still don't don't see that. They don't believe it. And they always push back on that. I've even experienced, you know, that myself and Latasha has as well. So where do you see things shifting, uh, you know, one way or the other? And, you know, how can our you know community fight against this? Yeah. I mean, we can really do a whole episode, a whole series on this issue of white Christian nationalism. So I'll say to folks right now, this is the beginning of a conversation. If you want to learn more, go to my Substack, jamartisby.substack.com. Mm-hmm. You can find the link to that in all of my socials at Jamar Tisby. Um, I also have a 10-part podcast series from last year called White yeah. Nation Under God uh, that, that goes through this. So... Um, that one, that one is is maybe five or six part. The one that is ten parts is those meddling kids about white Christian nationalism's effect on that, Christian yeah, that's and <laughs> those, so those meddling kids. Either one of those you can go to. Um, here's here's the thing. So let me say this: white Christian nationalism. Here's my definition: white Christian mm-hmm. nationalism is an ethnocultural ideology mm-hmm. that uses Christian symbolism as a permission structure for the acquisition of political power and social control. Mm -hmm. Let me unpack a little bit. Ethnocultural because it has this concept of European slash white Western civilization as superior. Mm. Sometimes they say it, sometimes it's implied, but that's the idea, right? Whose theology is the best theology? Yeah. That we learned, right? Yeah, yeah. It, right. it came from dead white men, right? Yeah, Western that's theology. All, that's all the people Western God spoke culture. to. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, European white folks, right? Almost mm-hmm. always male. Mm-hmm. And and there's this implicit idea of who a true American is. I don't know why we don't talk about this more, but who is the quintessential embodiment of a down-home American? In comic books, we were talking about Marvels before. It's Captain mm-hmm. America. Yeah. What Captain America looked like? Mm-hmm. Blonde haired, blue eyed, white guy. And Go a step further. What did he believe? Mm. His belief system. He's a what? He's a Christian. He's a Christian. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And go a step further when you did Uh-oh. look at Winter Soldier and, and the Falcon. Yeah. Come on, oh, sir. We're going deep now. Come on. <laughs> we see a black man who right. had the same uh, serum that mm-hmm. made him. Uh, have all the abilities of the white Captain America, but they shuffled him to the side. They kept him secret. They experimented on him, Mm -hmm. right? And it's all this controversy now that the new Captain America is a black man, right? So you can't just, they're not interchangeable. It's not someone who's simply patriotic. There's an Mm -hmm. ethno-cultural part there. Right, mm-hmm. right, right, right. I'm just Type getting cast. started, y'all. Yeah. I'm saying it's an ideology. I'll go quickly. It's an ideology in the sense that it's less dependent on data and facts than feelings and prejudices. Mm. That's yeah. why it's like talking to a brick wall with yes. some folks. Even if you have all the logic, all the books, all the articles, all the resources, because it's not primarily a, an intellectual, logical thing. Mm-hmm. It's a feelings in-group, out-group, identity thing, right? Yeah. So Sounds like how race was created to me. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds real familiar, don't it? It's a construct. Um, it's a construct. It's a construct. And, mm-hmm. But here's the thing. it's People always ask, is white Christian nationalism Christian? Well, 
No, in the most basic sense, because it doesn't look like Jesus. So that's yes. easy. But we can't let ourselves Periods. off the hook that much, right? <laughs> but they, they, it is Christian in the sense that they use Christian symbols, whether that's going to church, praying, reading the Bible, um, you know, fasting, even prayer, right? All of that is part of white Christian nationalism. So I wrote an article on my Substack that says essentially the most important question to ask is not whether white Christian nationalism is Christian. The important question to ask is what responsibility do we have as Christians to address white Christian nationalism? Because they're calling themselves Christian. So if you care about the witness of the church, that's why I say it's a threat not only to democracy, but to the church. This is the ideology that is causing people to run away from Christianity. So especially evangelicals who call themselves evangelical because they're supposed to be focused on the gospel, sharing the good news and bringing people in, you ought to be concerned about the messages and the people that are forcing people out. So mm-hmm. um, it's an ideology. It uses Christian symbolism as a permission structure. So it gives it a, a, a divine sanction to do what they're doing. And the true goal is the acquisition of political power and social control. So I'll pause there. But yeah, if you don't know what it is, there's a quick and dirty definition for you. And the way this looks, this is American flags in the pulpit. Uh, it's a huge um, 4th of July celebration. It's uh, a celebration of uh, a valorization of the Second Amendment. So you got folks at church open carrying guns. Um, uh, you got uh, the January 6th is... Folks were praying, folks had crosses, folks had Bibles. Why? Because they thought that what they were doing and overturning a legitimate election, the first and the nearest threat to a a, a violent overthrow of a lawful election we've had in American history, they thought that was God's work. And and I'll just give you this as a bonus. I'm going to shut up after this. White Christian nationalism violates all kinds of God's laws, but I focus in particular on how it violates the third commandment of not taking the Lord's name in vain. Mm. And it's not about cursing or using swear words. It's doing things in God's name that God would never condone. My God, White Christian nationalism is taking God's name in vain because they are violent, they are uh, uncharitable, unloving, and they're doing it in God's name. Mm Mm-hmm. And also, I would say, you know, diminishing um, the Imago Day, you know, um, yeah. and people, you know, yeah. and how we treat people and not leading um, out of compassion, which is the characteristic of who Jesus is, right. you know? Yeah. And so... Um, don't look they, like Jesus. Exactly. <laughs> don't off. look like yeah. Jesus. And this is like when we talk about the threat to the church, when we talk about um, why people are leaving the church, this is, we, we don't want to get to the real reason on why people yep. are disillusioned with church, why mm-hmm. uh, we have more segregation, racial segregation um, in church now than we've ever had. Why, you know, that, that big move that was happening 15 years ago, uh, pastors, look at your churches this Sunday. Look around, you know. Yeah, and I was thinking even as uh, as there was a, there was a time period where there was an exodus of black people from black churches 
into these into white spaces because they thought things would be different, but because then they experienced this, that complicity uh, that reoccurred in the, those experiences, they say, you know what, we ain't doing this. Ain't working either. We out. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah. We, we we did a, a a series on pass the mic called Leave Loud. Yeah. And we we talk about some of these stories of black people leaving. There's a new I think um, generational wrinkle to this story of uh, church segregation is you have a generation of people like me who weren't raised in the black church came to faith in a white evangelical context over time saw the racism and the complicity there and so have left those spaces. But the black church is not familiar. Mm, It's not home or a native religious language, so to speak, which doesn't mean we can't go or we can't access it. But it's not as if we're sort of returning somewhere because that was never where we found our home initially. So we Mm -hmm. do have this generation of people, and especially as we have uh, with our young people for the first time, majority minority, majority people of color, right? Now it's a plurality that's going to catch up on a national scene in a couple mm-hmm. decades. But uh, with with young people, it's already happening. There's a lot more mixed race folks than there used to be. And so this binary of black church, white church is um, increasingly less uh, fitting or less um, comfortable for a generation of people, which doesn't mean, I'm not saying that black churches or even some white churches aren't welcoming or com- comforting, right? It's just what I'm just trying to say is um, the solution for everybody black isn't immediately to go back, go to back to black churches because there's no going back to a place where you you never really found yourself, if you will. Right, That's good. right. That's, That's so good. good. So good. I know being a part of a multi-ethnic church um, here, our church um, closed um, a little over a year ago, and it's been hard trying to find um, a multi-ethnic church that um, also empowers women. For me, that's something important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's been difficult. So I know that. And so if you're out there, you know, um, you know, one of the things that a lot of people have found helpful and having community. And so we, you know, we have Be The Bridge groups. So having that community sometimes helps in that transition. And so Mm -hmm. don't do this alone. Like, you know, get in community with one another. And I've, you know, just even some of our white brothers and sisters, they're finding it difficult because they're leaving these spaces also and finding themselves not knowing where to go. You know, and so um, one um, friend of mine was just saying, like, she was so grateful for her Be The Bridge group because these were some people they have grown together, like minded people, and they were visiting churches together. You know, they're having lunch together. They're having fellowship together. They're challenging. They're having Bible study, like all of these things. So make sure you find your people, um, find your community as you um, go through these difficult and, and hard waters. And, you know, um, that we're all experiencing right now. So, bruh, I can't believe it's all, it, it's been an hour. Um, <laughs> it's been so good. You have a new book um, that is is coming out. Um, you know, every time I say we always need to do. Ah! <laughs> if you're watching this, if you're watching this, he just panned to a big poster 
on his pew, wall pew, 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 pew. that is that is uh, beautiful. <laughs> it says the spirit, ju- uh, oh, the spirit of justice. justice, stories of faith, race, and resistance. Wow. I love it. I love it. And so, yeah. so, listen, listen, you guys. So Jamar's book comes out in September. Okay. Um, um, Brown Faces, White Spaces comes out in May. May. And um, I'll be Jamar, next year, maybe. You know, <laughs> <I'll finish that. laughs> look, 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 just like that. Seven, like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 listen, listen, you, we're gonna we're gonna bring you on the road, Jefferson, so you can host. You know, you can host. <laughs> you can, I mean, we, we got to do a joint book. We did. We no we got to do a joint book event. <laughs> We have hey, got to do a joint, you know, and so, and we got J- Jefferson and Holes and we just do a, a joint book of it, you know, but in all seriousness, now I was telling someone, you know, like, this is your third book, your fourth book, fourth book. If you, the, um, if you count, um, the, the rewrite for the youth version, right. This mm-hmm. is number four. Mm-hmm. We have so many resources. I mean, incredible resources that are being produced. You know, this is Black History, so I'm just talking about, like, just by Black people right now. I mean, content, um, movies, TV shows, documentaries, books, all of these things that there's, like, no excuse to be uneducated as it relates to these issues. It's no excuse to be doubting or questioning whether America was built on racist, um, a racist foundation. There's there's no excuse. No, I was just going to add this tiny little thought. uh, When I was at the university, I had a room full of 50 young adults. It had to be between uh, 21 and 30. I asked them to write down as many uh, black theologians and books that they've read by black authors, the highest number that anyone could come up with was seven. Mm. And that was only like three or four out of 50 people. Mm. Mm. And I bet the average was probably one to three. Exactly. Why is it so important, uh, Latasha and, and Jamar, that we continue to push uh, black theologians, black authors, and black books, especially now. Yeah, yeah. I know we're wrapping up, but like... Yeah, that's good. That's good. Just a quick thought on hey, that. Tomorrow. Well, one of the things that I say is, um, for most people, you're not going to be consistent in learning about this, much less doing something about racial justice. If you just leave it to your willpower, if you just leave it to your mood, it's like anything, right? If you want to change what you eat, if you want to work out more consistently, if you just depend on whatever happens to come your way, you're going to always find other priorities. So Mm. one of the things that I encourage people to do is write a racial justice action plan. Mm. I've helped Mm -hmm. a few organizations, churches, nonprofits do this, but you can even do it on an individual level. I encourage folks to use the arc of racial justice, awareness, relationships, commitment, and say over the next year, over the next quarter, three months, here are the intentional ways I'm going to build my awareness, for example. Mm -hmm. So then I'm going to go buy Latasha's book 
I'm going to put that on my list and I'm going to have that ready. So in quarter two, I know that I'm going to, you know, spend May reading that book. Mm -hmm. And what I'm encouraging is an intentionality. We err when we think racial justice will simply cross our paths Mm. and be part of our day-to-day life all by itself. No, we have to make it part of Mm -hmm. our life Mm -hmm. and we have to make it part of our entire disposition toward how we spend our time. And the only way we can do that is with intentionality, through a plan, through a community, like you said. So all I'm saying is don't think it's just going to happen by itself or that you'll be in the mood to do it consistently. Right. Like any other habit or skill that you want to develop, put a plan around it, have some accountability and work the plan. Yeah. And that's, and a part of that is called formation, you know, developing that, that, that muscle um, in you. But, you know, it's, it's important to hear the perspectives and the stories of um, other ethnicities, other groups, other, even, you know, not even just talking about Western culture, but like even in Eastern culture, you know, um, broadening ourselves. And so, um, you know, because, you know, we read the Bible through our Western cultural lens. And so when we read from other authors, we're broadened in that. The, 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 um, mm-hmm. the, um, the word of God um, becomes wider and deeper and our experiences and our intimacy with God becomes wider and deeper. And I think that's why it's important that, um, you know, we look at the systemic issues where half the church was mm-hmm. silent. And speaking into a lot of things, you know, um, but the voices were there. They were just mm-hmm. kept silent. And so we mm-hmm. have this very multi-ethnic, um, diverse um, early start of the church. You know, when we look at, you know, Greek speaking Jews, Hebrew speaking Jews, you know, all the, the diaspora um zealots, um, the, um, you know, Pharisees, Sadducees, I, um, the, um, I think the essence are, I think they're called, but I'm just mm-hmm. saying all these different sects of, of, mm-hmm. of, of Judaism that, that come together, that kind of make in the Gentiles on that and all the, the different cultures they're bringing into that. So the Bible shows us the way, you know? And so I think it's important that we are very inclusive with, um, you know, what we're reading, who we're reading, mm-hmm. um, because then you start to think that if it's not white, it's not right. Exactly. You know, so. That's uh, cultural ideology in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Jamar, okay, so as we've talked about all the hard things, this is the thing. We, we, we write hard books. We do hard things, you know, but, um, there is, you know, if some of you guys listening to this, you know, you see we're still laughing. There's that tension of, um, you know, that um, joy and sorrow, you know, that we can weep and lament over these things, but also hold that tension and um, 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 of, of joy. We still are filled with joy of the expectancy of what of who God is and what God is doing. Um, that brings a sense of hope um, to us. What is bringing um, you hope um, right now, Jamar. What is bringing you hope? I have the privilege of traveling around the country and talking about this stuff, which is 
you know, mostly the truth telling part and and talking about what went wrong, how we can get it right. Mm-hmm. What stands out to me though is there are people all over this country mm-hmm. who want to see progress in racial justice. Mm-hmm. Their voices can be drowned out yeah. by the other voices, right? But we are mistaken if we think that we're the only ones or one of a few. Mm. Now, we may not be the majority, but never underestimate what God can do with very little. Yes. Come on. I think it was somewhere, I think I read somewhere something about a kingdom and a mustard seed. I think, I think I read something somewhere about five loaves and fishes and 5,000 people being fed and satisfied with, with food left over. Mm-hmm. I think I read somewhere where God is all powerful. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think I read somewhere where God was speaking to somebody named Gideon. You got too many people. You got too many people. You got too many people because if it's a big number, they're going to attribute it to the power in your forces. If it's a tiny number that couldn't possibly succeed from an earthly standpoint, they're going to know it was God. So I wonder, I wonder if God might not be up to something similar with Mm. the church and race. Where yes. we think it's all about numbers, it's all about uh, filling the building, it's all mm. about filling the bank account. And don't get me wrong, those mm. things aren't wrong or bad. If you want to fill my bank account, please just let me know. But <laughs> what I'm saying is, it's not required for God to make a move. Sir. And many times, God makes his biggest moves with the smallest resources. Yes. So hang in there. So Amen. God, go ahead and bust the move. Yes, yes. Exactly. I love it. I love it. Can we pray? I, yes. Let's pray for that. Yes. I, I, tell, I tell people, Javar, you know, when we go and do these trainers around the country, you know, I said, God has always used a remnant. It's never been mm-hmm. the majority. And it's never been those that had the power. You know, it's all, the, the gospel has always spread, um, with the marginalized, you know, um, with um, the oppressed, uh, with the silenced, with those that are deemed um, what you would say um, unlovable, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are here today because of those few, Amen. you know. Yes, and so that is that's the thing that um, brings us hope. And I, you know, so I, I would say we are. Few in numbers, but mighty in power, you know, because I do believe that there are more people who want to be a part of kingdom work. They want to see the flourishing of all God's people. They want to lift up um, um, the image bearers. Um, There's more people that want to do that than not. But sometimes those who are on the opposing side are the loudest. That's and it right. makes it seems like they are the majority. Um, right. But I am hopeful. Thank you, brother, for locking arms um, with this. This yeah. is Jamar Tisby. Um, you know, uh, 
he has the 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 um releasing the movie God and Country. Uh, that's re- released in February the 16th. And in September, um, he is releasing his oh. new book. And um, it is called The Spirit of Justice, um, Stories of Faith, Race, and Resistance. Um, Jamar is a historian um, that specializes um, in, um, um, let me think right here, race and religion um, and social movements. And he is traveling the world, doing all of those things. Thank you, my brother, um, for saying yes, uh, for answering the call, um, for writing, um, for teaching, for developing, for lifting, for preaching, um, for leading, um, not just um, those, you know, that are interested in this work, um, but your family, your, your children mm-hmm. and, and all of that. So I'm so grateful for you. Thank you for joining us on the Be The Bridge podcast. Um, thank you also. This is when you can call on your friends. I'm just going <laughs> to, I'm just going to expose it. <laughs> you should just spill all the tea. <laughs> I'm going to spill all the tea. Jamar found out yesterday about this. And so we had... <laughs> We had, you know, things happen with scheduling and all the things and um, in, the, in the new year. But we are so grateful um, for you saying yes. And um, we, well, we listen, hope I am a fan. A blessing. I love the work that you're doing. It's a yeah. blessing to thousands upon thousands <laughs> of people here. And I'm sure it's international by now. So uh, when I got the call, I said, say less, as the young yeah. people say. They say, say, say less. less. I didn't know what that meant. But yeah. anyway, uh, yeah, anytime, anytime. And hopefully yeah. when the spirit of justice comes out, I can be back on and, and yes. we, we yes. can even do a we live event together about both. Yes. Yes. Yeah, we, we'll have to do that. And so we'll get definitely get that scheduled so i know how that is so um, i'm excited thank you so much and thank you for um, giving us your time bro thanks for listening to the be the bridge podcast to find out more about the be the bridge organization and or to become a bridge builder in your community go to be the bridge.com again that's be the bridge.com If you've enjoyed this podcast, remember to rate and review it on this platform and share it with as many people as you possibly can. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Today's show was edited, recorded, and produced by Trayvon Potts at Integrated Entertainment Studios in Metro Atlanta, Georgia. The host and executive producer is Latasha Morrison. Lauren C. Brown is the senior producer. And transcribed by Sarah Knatzer. Please join us next time. This has been a Be The Bridge production.